0: joining us today
1: in and starts, um, but hopefully we'll get our full contingent. Um,
2: I guess just a couple things about today and the process. Um, this is a fairly small group, so I think, you know, logistics-wise it should be pretty straightforward. Um, I have all the faith that we're all a respectable group of folks who will, um, you know, listen to different ideas and um, be able to have a discussion about them. Do you want to go ahead and dive in?
3: That's Tara Bergeson. She's the Natural Resources Program Supervisor at the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and she heads up statewide invasive species regulation. You just heard her welcoming a group of scientists and concerned residents to one of the 2020 Species Assessment Groups. These groups aim to decide what species should be listed as invasive in the state of Wisconsin. On the agenda today,
4: should feral hogs stay classified as a prohibited species in Wisconsin?
3: Feral hogs like the <sighs> the viral meme from last year?
4: <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That's the one you should be thinking of. Um, I guess you do remember that one tweet where in response to like Jason Isbell posting about gun control, someone someone responded by asking Legit question for rural Americans, how do I kill the 30 to 50 feral hogs that run into my yard within three to five minutes while my small kids play that meme?
3: Yeah, I do. It went really viral. I just remember logging into Twitter and like everyone was talking about feral hogs and I really had to dive deep to figure out why. Yeah, yeah.
4: Well, it's already illegal to own, sell, and move these animals in Wisconsin, but hogs are actually becoming more widespread. Sometimes they breed with domestic pigs, so farmers could technically be breaking the law by possessing feral hogs and not even knowing about it. So that's why Tara and this council are taking another look at feral hogs' classification.
5: They significantly
0: uh, degrade ecosystems. Alkape deer, Alcopete bear, um, they're obviously a herd animal, um, they have high pre- reproductive rates, um, they really dig uh, up the ground when uh, they're found. There's probably a population, a breeding population continuing in
1: Crawford County.
3: Species Assessment Group, it sounds pretty dry and bureaucratic, but you encounter the work they do all the time without even realizing it. This group is why you've never seen red swamp crayfish for sale in Wisconsin grocery store, for example, or why you can't buy invasive water lettuce at your local garden store.
4: Species assessment groups meet about once every five years, and usually they happen in person. Like, picture the basement of a public library or a conference room on a local college campus. but. Like everything else, in 2020, this meeting was virtual, and Bonnie and I joined in over Zoom.
3: There are nine other people in this meeting, plus me and Sydney. Three are DNR conservation biologists. One is from the US Department of Agriculture, one is the state wildlife veterinarian, and one focuses on wildlife rehab.
4: Right now, they're deciding whether or not feral hogs should remain on Wisconsin's list of prohibited species.
5: It's remarkable how quickly we get calls on pigs. Um, we've had some people it numerous times that the pigs are at the intersection of, you know, Highway 41 and Johnson Street or something, and it's the same guy whose domestic pigs are just loose. The DNR has a hotline for people to report feral swine. Uh, those calls come in; they 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 get transferred over to us, and we investigate those.
4: Even though it seems like a pretty obvious decision that you know these species should be listed as prohibited, the Species Assessment Group still spent a pretty long time deliberating over how to classify feral hogs. If they decide the hogs should no longer be listed as prohibited species, they'll recommend the state legislature update NR40, which is Wisconsin's invasive species law.
3: At the same time, other species assessment groups are debating aquatic plants, aquatic animals, and pathogens. Could those threaten our waters? If so, should they be written into the law? Essentially, who gets to decide where a species belongs? And what does it mean for something to be invasive? Today, we're exploring these questions. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Sydney. And you're listening to Introduced from Wisconsin Sea Grant. Invasive species is a term that's pretty common in Western science and academia, but some groups and people reject the word invasive altogether.
6: My name is
7: Sarah Smith. Uh, I'm from the United Nation in Wisconsin. Uh, my name is Jerry John um, I'm from the Keweenaw Bay Indian community.
3: Sarah Smith and Jerry Gendro have had to reckon with the term invasive before. They're among the co-authors of the Tribal Climate Adaptation Menu, which centers Indigenous knowledge and needs in climate resilience planning. These are perspectives that have been ignored or appropriated in this field for too long. We'll be hearing much more about the Tribal Climate Adaptation Menu soon. Creating a document like this took two years. The team includes representatives from tribal groups, academic groups, and government groups from Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and this team met every other month for two years. The group spent a lot of time talking about word choice. Here's team member Jerry Jundro.
7: We, we were doing wordsmithing like it was nobody's business, man. It was uh, every single uh, line that we were. Um, discussing, you know, we we took issue with the types of words and the language that was being used because in Western management, there's this inherent hierarchy that's incorporated into the language that's used for management. And um, from our perspective, you know, it's, it's more of a level playing field that we're all um, on the same level. And so to speak down on something or to assume that you have some sort of um, authority over someone or some other being at the same time we just felt was it, it wasn't right, and then uh, even some of the concepts that we put in there, uh, there really wasn't any uh, English term that could really capture what uh, the, the the tribal or the Ojibwe or the Menominee um, language would encompass.
3: Here is Sarah Smith. Everything
6: that we put into the document was all based on consensus. So, I mean, there was one term we spent an entire day talking about, right?
3: Yeah. What was the word that, or the phrase that you talked about for a day?
6: Invasive species. (laughs) That is what we spent almost an entire day talking about. Um, Because when you say invasive species, it has such this, like, negative connotation to it um and that didn't agree with a lot of us um so that's that was the one term we we spent probably the longest talking about i would say these beans are going according to their original instructions they're just in a different place you know they don't have the same checks and balances the other beans around them um, and so that's why we had a lot of discussion about invasive species is because they're they're not the enemy because there's a lot of talk about oh we need to eradicate them we need to just get rid of them right um when they're only doing what they were told to do
7: you know i've been thinking a lot about this too and if you really think about it really all you know invasive species are a species that's coming from one place and establishing in another place that it's not. Uh, indigenous, do, right? And if you think about it, you know that's exactly what happened here with colonization. I don't think that gets talked about enough. And uh, if you really think about, you know, what invasive species do, they tend to change the ecosystem, and um, uh, in many, in many times for, for the worse, you know, for for the other beings that are there. And uh, I think a lot of that has been playing out here, but there's never really been that comparison between. Um, settler colonization and invasive species.
3: In the Finnish tribal climate adaptation menu, they don't rely on the term invasive species. Instead, they use the English term non-local beings. Melanie Montano, a Redcliffe tribal member. Melanie Montano was instrumental in this process of going between Ojibwe concepts and English concepts. She's a traditional ecological knowledge Outreach Specialist at the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, or GLIFWIC.
5: I really struggled and always have with the term of invasive species, and I've tried to continuously educate people on another perspective of that. And so with the tribal adaptation menu, that's a conversation that had been ongoing with us, you know, talking about terms in general, but invasive species was one of them and uh, what to use as an alternative. In the Ojibwe language, I had to actually seek out a term for that um, because it's not commonly known what we even refer to invasive species as. It's such a foreign concept from a culture perspective. Melanie
3: met with a St. Croix tribal elder.
5: Uh, So I actually sat and had a conversation with him that I recorded and I was inquiring about various terms such as vulnerability assessment, um, climate change and invasive species was one of them in relation to the tribal adaptation menu. We discussed the concepts of those terms, um, but also then how would we refer to them? How do we talk about them from an English English speaking lens in order to be able to translate them into Ojibwe? And there is no direct translation, of course. Instead of you know invasive species, we talked about what they mean to us from a culture perspective. Um, and we simply refer to them as non-local beings because they're, they're beings that aren't from our areas. Um, they were created just like any other being. And what we believe from a cultural perspective is that beings have been put on this earth, the you know plants, the trees, the water, and all of those other things. And the people were the last ones to be put on. We're all given specific instructions when we're placed here. And so those beings that are non-locals, it's you know nothing negative or bad about them. They're simply following their original instructions as given by the creator when they were put here. And they were basically relocated by people or whatever means, um, but ended up here. And so they deserve respect as well.
3: After lots of talk, the tribal adaptation menu team decided to use the term non-local beings. That's the English phrase at least. The menu also uses the Ojibwe language phrase for this concept. Another member of the team, Katie Brissett, has experience teaching the Ojibwe language, and she told me about this Ojibwe language term. Bakanagodega undadak. So Bakan—that's the
8: word, the first one. Bakan. Um, it just means different or of an other. So like Bakan and Nagwat, they they look different. Is that word? So Bokan. Ingoje is the second word there. Bakan Ingoje. And that's just, um, it's a place, spatial reference, or um, it's like around or about. Um, often you'll hear it like, oh, Ingoje me Like it's, oh, it's just about 10 o'clock. But it's when you don't necessarily have a specific location or very direct Um place that you're talking about so if you're not like like if you would you would tell people if you knew where they came from you would be like oh in this space um you would have the spatial reference because that's what's tied to that third word which is ga undadak so und o-n-d that small little morpheme that's right in the middle that's the the Mm -hmm. word that talks about origination um so you'll hear it like in donjiba where i'm from or That was the one I was sharing with Jerry just a minute, like from whence the sound of the water or or liquid comes. So you hear that when you're talking about a brook or a tree um, with sap or anything like that. With Ojibwemun, when you have that OND, that morpheme there, you're usually specifying a location. So if you're not actually giving someone a location, you have to let them know They're from a certain place, but it's not somewhere I necessarily know. (laughs) It's kind of how that works.
7: They're indigenous to a place and there are people there that have a better understanding of who that being is. And so instead of just initially saying, well, you know, you're not from here, you don't belong here, uh, we're going to we're going to rip you up and and throw you away. Um, Why don't we have like cultural transmissions and, and cultural um migration as well right if there's a new being that comes into our our forests here instead of just trying to rip them out and throw them away you know maybe go talk to the people that have a really good relationship with that tree species say you know how do you guys utilize this tree species you know or what does it do you know what are what are some of the things that um that you could tell me about that tree that would uh you know make it beneficial to our life and our existence
4: What inspired you to start asking questions about the way we understand invasive species?
1: Well, um, I ran over a thorn on my motorcycle when I was writing my dissertation and it blew out my tire. (laughs) And I was like, what the (laughs) hell is this tree? That was
3: Paul Robbins. He's the Dean of the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Paul was in Rajasthan in Northern India when this happened. He looks around and sees the thorn was from this tree. It was the Mexican mesquite tree. And you'll hear Paul refer to it as Persepus juliflora. How did this tree native to the hottest desert in Mexico end up causing Paul's flat tire in India?
1: What the hell was it doing out here in rural Rajasthan? And then if you started looking around, it was everywhere and and moving at a a really remarkable rate. into the landscape extremely aggressively. And I became convinced that it was a really important actor in the politics of managing resources there. Um, It was the first time I'd really come across a non-human who had so much influence over how things were happening.
3: This thorn kept blowing out Paul's tires and he ended up writing about this tree for years. The tree was brought to Northern India during British colonization and it has this ability to grow really quickly and so it develops this really thick canopy quickly and animals can't really eat it and it was brought in to green the landscape to make everything a little bit greener because it is this fast-growing tree. The Indian government at the time had set these targets for land cover so they had decided that 30% of the land should have forest canopy cover. And this was kind of an arbitrary number, but that was the law or the policy. And so if you worked for the Forest Service or the state, if it was your job to manage the land, you probably really liked this tree because it enabled you to hit that goal of 30% land cover. Since then, the tree has rapidly spread. Before colonization, this area had a desert grassland ecosystem. But this tree, the Persepus juliflora, had huge influence on changing that ecosystem.
1: You got a a huge success story by letting this outrageous invasive plant loose on the ground. So it it had for many years political allies in the forest department in India. Uh, It produced a canopy, and the canopy could be seen with air photography and remote sensing. And if the canopy was driving itself towards 33% forest cover, that is a stated policy goal of the Indian government. Therefore, it's got allies. There are people who benefit from its expansion or who, or for whom uh, extirpation would be an extra cost. So I think we have to think about these species in networks with other species, including people and bureaucrats, but also with other plants and animals.
3: So. It's not really just this tree that is invasive. It's this whole context of history, colonialism, politics, and culture. It's the conditions that make something invasive.
1: Well, right. I mean, weeds are just, weeds are just plants out of place. And out of place simply means out of the place that you want them. <laughs> it might be very much indigenous. Um, most of the weeds that are invading turf grasses Uh, in lawns are actually the indigenous species. It's the turf grasses that are the exotic species. That's hilariously ironic, right? That we are beating ourselves up to protect an invasive exotic pasture grass in front of our house. And when the indigenous plants show up, we call them weeds.
3: Another example of this that is pretty interesting is kudzu. Have you heard of it? I think so. I think a neighbor named their dog Kudzu. Interesting. Okay. Well it's the most it's possibly the most recognized invasive species in the United States, apparently. <laughs> That's funny that <Ben. laughs> Um We don't have it here in Wisconsin, so I didn't really know what it was, but it is this fast growing vine that can cover forests and houses and um it's really really taken over a lot of places in the Southern US.
1: I think kudzu is a really interesting case. Very famous, of course. The guy who introduced kudzu uh, to the Southeast United States was a folk hero. He was loved. He had a radio show. Um, People listened to what he had to say because it was a great forage crop. Back then people had cows, They had a lot of cows. And um, it was hard times in the 20s and 30s uh, and people were really happy with it. And then, you know, the cattle economy kind of folded down there and the forestry economy came up. And as soon as you have a forestry economy, now you got a problem. Kudzu may be great for cows, but it's crap for forests, right? I mean, those were classic pictures. Arguably, the forest invaded the kudzu, not the other way around, right? The economy changed around the species. So it went from being not invasive, being just an exotic, useful thing, to suddenly becoming an invasive, exotic, pernicious, evil, awful plant. And that happened in the space of 10 years, 25 years maybe. And it's just a classic case to show you how arbitrary that is. Things become invasive when we call them invasive, right? That doesn't mean now that the biology and the ecology of these plants and animals does not make them aggressive in particular kinds of habitats. So so they express, um, certainly invasive habits. So they're part of the story, that it's not somehow a social construction. These plants do grow in particular ways. Animals move around in particular ways. So the biology matters. But it is interesting that the normative fiction, right, has always has a historic moment where something becomes invasive.
3: This is so fascinating to me. And it, it was really reminding me of some things closer to home, like near the Great Lakes. For example, we've seen a lot of invasive species introduced to the Great Lakes through canals, like the canals that people dug in the 1800s with the aims of connecting the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean. While these canals helped ships come in and ship goods between the coasts and the inland Great Lakes, it also opened the lakes up to a lot of non-native species. And one of these species is the alewife. They're small silver and schooling fish they came into the Great Lakes from the canals a hundred years ago. They came at an opportune time. They really took over. They became a huge population in the Great Lakes, especially Lake Michigan. They also then they started dying off in huge masses, covering the the shores in fish goo, like really bad stuff. It smells so bad. <laughs> yeah. So alewives, they were viewed as a really bad nuisance. You know, how could this have happened to the lakes? But then. Salmon were introduced and salmon kind of brings this whole economy of anglers wanting to catch them and the economy really changed around the alewives and so now you don't usually hear a lot of people talking about like how bad alewives are and we need to get them out of the lake because they're what feeds the salmon. And so the focus of dominant management culture now seems to kind of be centered on alewives. Like we need to keep the alewife populations up so the salmon can survive and have something to eat. If the alewife population goes down, the salmon industry will crash and that would be bad for our economy. People have even gone so far as suggesting to stock alewives into the lake.
4: The tables have really, really turned around that. Yeah and in addition to having just certain economic factors shifting around a species and making it maybe more problematic than it was before like your alewife example one thing that paul points out that i think is really visible in the great lakes is that sometimes there are certain economic systems that make either new invasions seem (laughs) inevitable basically or um, could exacerbate the impacts of certain species that are already here. An example that comes to mind for me are common carp, which were brought to North America and Wisconsin and spread around as a food source. And you know, they've got these this particular biology where they eat a ton, they grow super quickly, and they live in these really degraded conditions. Um, so those are like the biological and ecologic facts, but of course you have to consider them in this broader context. Landowners in Illinois, and Wisconsin, and like these places where the carp are, or where the carp could easily be. They do not like the carp because they're thought to lower water quality. They uproot aquatic plants, and they stir up sediment on the bottom of the lake. And the sediment at the bottom of the lake stores a lot of phosphorus. And phosphorus is a nutrient that is pretty much gasoline for algae blooms. Algae and low water clarity are not great if you're trying to sell lakefront property, and it's super easy to blame all of that on the carp.
1: It has a political enemy, which is like shore associations and real estate agents that need to sell property <laughs> right? on lake shores and, and lake, sh- lake owners and people who have docks. I mean you couldn't pick worse enemies than people with docks.
4: Speaking of political enemies, Asian carp, the four fish we call Asian carp in the Illinois River, are up against the federal government and the Army Corps of Engineers and. Literally millions and millions of dollars are being spent to prevent these fish from entering the Great Lakes. Especially for lakes in agricultural and urban settings, excessive amounts of phosphorus end up in sediment in the first place because of human activities, like putting a ton of phosphorus-heavy fertilizer in your yard or in your crops, and then the way watersheds have been developed so that you're able to basically shuttle all of that phosphorus off the land and into the water because we've removed a lot of wetlands and created a lot of impervious surfaces like roads that really expedite that process of um, what's called phosphorus loading. CARP are definitely exacerbating this problem, but there's so much we could be doing on land to solve these problems and prevent that phosphorus from ending up in our water bodies.
3: Yeah. If silver and bighead carp made it to the Great Lakes, it's thought that they would probably be able to survive in nearshore areas where there's a lot of nutrients runoff because that's, that's what would allow them to get the nutrients enough to eat and survive and reproduce. So basically, the more runoff, the better for carp.
1: If we didn't have unlimited amounts of phosphorus entering our stream systems, Asian carp wouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, it wouldn't be as big a deal. So it just shows you right there that there are conditions that produce um, an urgency around some species invasions that other species invasions largely get ignored.
3: So why do we have the water quality problems we do? Like, why does our land and water even look the way that it does? And you can trace this all the way back to the colonization of indigenous land and the US government violently removing native people and bringing a completely different way of understanding the landscape.
4: And maybe bringing with them this false sense of limitless abundance that led to reckless exploitation of what we call resources, and not to mention genocide. And I just have to wonder like how much the legacy of this shapes how we continue to imagine what the natural world should look like and what species we think should belong there. It's
1: just like genocide, underneath all these ecological questions, is the violence of American history. Always. You know, and it's and, and there's no getting around it, so it's not like I'm criticizing ecologists for this, or me, because I have these same responses. I'm just saying we have to acknowledge it. I think we have to acknowledge that invasive species are a biological fact. Uh, that, Exotic species can behave aggressively outside their historic uh, range, but that it's, it's a heavily loaded normative term. In practice, when people use the term invasive species, they mean something pernicious, and that's strictly from a human point of view. And therefore, it's a cultural artifact. It's not a biological artifact alone. That is, a species isn't invasive unless we say it is.
4: If we as a culture decide what species we should call invasive, We wanted to understand exactly how that decision comes about. And I think we
3: figured it out. After the break, defining invasive species and the fate of a popular pet turtle.
2: Water Research Mysteries. Teachers connecting kids with the Great Lake in their communities erosion, and dangerous currents. These are just some of the stories offered by Wisconsin Sea Grant and the University of Wisconsin Water Resources Institute. A monthly podcast series, Wisconsin Water News, highlights stories previously available only in print from these programs. Series narrator and science communicator Marie Zwickoff brings the stories alive by featuring in-person and phone interviews with the people behind the news. Listen and subscribe to Wisconsin Water News on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or at Sea
3: picture this it's friday night you're getting ready to cook fish for dinner it's some of that fresh rainbow trout raised right here in wisconsin does it matter where the fish comes from yeah it does purchasing fish like rainbow trout from wisconsin fish farmers or lake whitefish caught by great lakes commercial fishers keeps your food dollars close to home and supports local family businesses Wisconsin's fish producers follow laws that protect fish populations, human health, and the environment so that they can offer you a sustainable product. Fish are easy to cook and nutritious. Visit eatwisconsinfish.org for more information and to find recipes. Wisconsin fish, local, healthy, delicious. Paul Robbins was saying that there are distinct moments in history when a species becomes invasive. He was referring to when economies shift and when places are colonized or when political decisions are made but if i want to find out if something is invasive or not i usually just google it and google tells me if the dnr has officially classified something as invasive or not so who makes those decisions it turns out that it's the invasive species council and the species assessment groups, which we mentioned at the beginning, you know, the people that were debating feral hogs.
4: Right, and the species assessment group feels so powerful to me. Like this slightly awkward Zoom call that we're sitting in, is this like the historical moment where something becomes prohibited in our state? Back at the species assessment group, the feral hogs are finally coming up for
1: a vote. Dan, go ahead, go next. Dan? Yeah. You? Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to, well, maybe you could guess, but I'm just going to go ahead with prohibitive. Okay, I'm shocked. Darlene.
5: <laughs> Prohibit
3: on out.
1: All right.
3: So this Figure means in. that feral hogs are going to stay on the yeah. prohibited list, right?
4: Yeah. This means that Tara won't recommend the legislature update our 40 which is Wisconsin's invasive species law. The feral hogs can stay on there as they are right now, which is prohibited. We talked to Tara earlier about what this law does.
2: So the the purpose really of NR40 is to to create a statewide system to classify invasive species. And in doing so, we also have tools at our disposal to help with prevention and control of those species. And it it established a scientific system for um, evaluating species so that we are able to look at a species and um, think about certain criteria for each species that might lend itself to being listed as an invasive species.
4: So species on NR40 are either classified as prohibited or restricted.
2: (laughs) If a species
4: is prohibited, that means it's illegal to sell it or move it or introduce it. It's the stricter of these two, these two designations. And it's usually reserved for species that aren't too widespread in the state yet, or species where eradication might still be possible. For prohibited species, it's required that the DNR control them. One example of this would be the red swamp crayfish. We talked about this a lot last season.
3: Yeah, they they aren't widespread in the state, and so I could see why, and we really don't want them here, so I can see why they would be on the strictest version of this rule. Yeah. The restricted
4: designation is for species that are already pretty established here, where eradication is likely not possible, and so the focus shifts more from like control to management. Um, It's still illegal to introduce or move these species around, but if they're growing on your property, you aren't going to get fined by the DNR. For example, Eurasian water milfoil, um, which is a super common aquatic plant. like You still want to clean off your boat before you move it from lake to lake, but if you have property on a lake and Eurasian water milfoil is growing in your water, nothing's going to happen to you. In all, there are more than 245 species on this list. And all of them have made it through one of these species assessment groups. These meetings, like the one you just heard about feral hogs, are organized by taxa. So like mammals versus reptiles and amphibians versus aquatic plants versus woody ornamental plants. There are all of these different designations and these councils of experts who come together to help guide these, guide these decisions.
2: The folks that are on these groups are there because they care. They care about the idea of invasive species, um, they care about you know what they do or their their industry potentially being impacted by the invasive species rule, and so I would say you know they want to have a
3: conversation. So we ended up sitting in on another species assessment group meeting a few weeks later after the feral hogs one. This group was fo- focused on reptiles and amphibians. The group meeting was slightly larger than the mammal group, so. Tara and David Lopez were back to facilitate the meeting, and the participants included a few DNR conservation biologists who focus on herptiles.
2: What are herptiles?
3: Herptiles are reptiles and amphibians, like the group classification. Oh, okay.
4: yeah. that's kind of a funny word.
3: Um, also attending was the president of the Madison Area Herp Society. They go on herping outings, which actually sounds like a <laughs> kind of a lot of fun. We had the curator of aquarium reptiles at the Milwaukee County Zoo, a specialist in herp diseases and a professor who is writing a book on amphibians and reptiles of Wisconsin.
0: I was just going to say, this is a collective of a lot of people I need to talk to outside of this meeting, too. correct. So um, and meeting at my house in- includes dwarf crocs, so that's fun.
4: Assuming not the shoe crocs.
3: Oh, shoe crocs. No. Yeah. um, There were no dwarf crocodiles at this virtual meeting, unfortunately, but um, some of the people in the video have aquariums in the background.
5: Looks like you have some specimens behind you.
3: Yes. (laughs) And just to look too closely, because they like to poop on the front of the cage right before I go
8: on to any kind of calls, either for here or work. So
4: that's usually our <laughs> Species assessment groups are designed so that anyone can participate and give feedback when these invasive species decisions are being made. So that's whether you're a wildlife biologist or a land manager or a garden shop owner. And these groups really try to honor all forms of expertise and experience. And in the end, everyone gets a vote. But there are also a few drawbacks to this setup. One drawback is some of these groups like these large species groups might be underrepresented. For example, there are so many more bugs in the world than there are large mammals. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to to like scale that in terms of like the experts who are coming in to make these decisions. Like there're just so many more like bugs and microorganisms that could cause economic or ecological harm and maybe should make it on this list that we don't know about or that aren't really on our radar yet.
2: Sometimes there's ones that are a little bit more tricky, and sometimes, um, it, and that too can be for a variety of reasons. It could be that there's not enough information um, to really make a good assessment, and so that can cause a little bit of a stumbling block. Sometimes it's just because people have seen or experienced a species differently.
3: So, back to the Herps group. Today they're discussing two popular pet store turtles the yellow bellied slider, which a turtle that has a yellow stripe and a yellow stomach and the red-eared sliders which have a distinct bright red stripe near the ear on the head after introductions the discussion begins ryan mcveigh jumps in he is the president of the madison area herp society he says that both of these turtle species are kind of a double-edged sword because pretty much any pet store you walk into is going to have red eared sliders they're very popular pets, and that also means that if people like can't care for them or they're more than they bargained for, people will commonly release them. Don't these turtles
4: also live for like 80 years or something outrageous?
3: <laughs> yeah, they can live for a long time. Um, they can live 20 to 30 years old, so not quite 80, but that's still a pretty long time to keep a pet. They're kind of a nuisance pet. Like a lot of people at the meeting don't really like them as pets. Um, They're really smelly. They get really big, so they need a really big tank. They poop a lot apparently. So yeah, a lot of these hurt people, like they know they're the most common turtle pet, but they're not really um, that enthused by them.
0: Me and Erica also run a rescue and I could fill dump trucks with red-eared sliders that are dumped off on us on a monthly basis.
3: So a big question for this group is, are red-eared sliders reproducing out in Wisconsin like where they might be introduced. Josh who's writing the Amphibians and Reptiles of Wisconsin book says he's seen multiple red-eared sliders throughout the state.
7: I mean there's reports for you know that are decades Quiet. old of red-eared sliders that were caught up in Bayfield County, right? There's one at the UW Zoology Museum. I have found red-eared sliders in the wetland right across from the football field here on campus on two different occasions.
3: Rich, who's a zoologist at the DNR, brings up this article that he's seen. It's a little bit alarming. It mentioned one claim of wild reproduction from red-eared sliders in Wisconsin. In 2012, someone had found a pregnant red-eared slider like out wandering around near an interstate near a wetland. He's looked into this case quite a bit.
7: I've never been terribly convinced that that's good evidence of reproduction in Wisconsin. Now I'm not saying there isn't reproduction in Wisconsin, but that that's the only incident that I am aware of where a gravid individual has been found.
3: He was kind of like, just because you found a gravid, aka pregnant turtle doesn't mean that it got pregnant in the wild, you know. It like He thinks Mm. it's more likely that it was released while it already was pregnant. So they talked a lot about if the species could reproduce here, but they didn't focus too much on if they would cause economic or ecological harm once they were potentially invasive here. But a few people brought up, like, they're probably not going to disrupt agriculture. Like, they're probably not going to be plowing into people's fields or eating their corn or something, but, like, if you have a new species of turtle here, they probably could outcompete our native turtles and they could probably um, take over in some areas and just change the food web and the ecosystem in our native habitats. But still, no one has seen reproduction. But what about surviving the winter? Like, can these turtles overwinter here? Reports of red eared sliders are becoming more widespread and so it's like who knows how many are surviving the winter this whole situation like kind of has me stressed because it's like this turtle might be able to survive the winter like they might be able to reproduce but these people haven't seen anything but they all were kind of acknowledging like There's so many places in the state that we just never go. There's so many places that we haven't checked. We can't check all the places. You know what I mean? So it's like... Yeah, they're going to be in the last place you look for them. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) To quote my dad. (laughs) Yeah.
4: Um, (laughs) So all of the concerns and decisions that people in these species assessment group meeting have, they're guided by the widely accepted definition of invasive species. If something's invasive, that means... It's a species capable of causing economic and ecologic harm.
3: Here's Tara again.
2: We're asking questions like, um, what species that are currently listed maybe don't need to be listed anymore for for a variety of reasons? Um, What species that are not listed should we consider listing? Um, Are there things kind of knocking on Wisconsin's doorstep that we're concerned enough about that we want to include in our invasive species rule so that then we have Um, some tools to actually um, take care of those things, hopefully before they become established.
4: Sometimes things are obviously invasive, like wild parsnip, which is this non-native terrestrial plant that causes this really bad rash and makes your skin really sensitive to sunlight. So you got, if you come in contact with wild parsnip, you end up getting this really bad sunburn. So like, obviously that is ecologic harm Mm. (laughs) to humans. Um, Yeah, but- Sometimes things are less obvious. What about things that people eat, or that people make money by selling, like water lettuce or popular pet turtles? Sometimes species can come up for debate and end up not making the list. Sometimes they get set aside to revisit later. One that was up for debate recently was the velvet longhorn beetle. They decided not to list it because there is no info about its ecologic or economic impact. Um, but they did agree to keep an eye on it for the future. Sometimes species are left off the list because NR40 simply will not stop their spread. An example of one of those species is the European paper wasp, which is widespread in Eastern Wisconsin and they're really strong flyers. So even if you do start regulating them, they can disperse on their own so easily. So NR40 isn't gonna help stop that. Another thing that NR40 doesn't really touch are species that are already extremely widespread in Wisconsin, like the European earthworm, which a lot of people don't realize is not native here. If there is no effective way to manage these species, the species won't be included in the rules. Sometimes there are just not great ways to control these species. Tara said that it's important to stay realistic. If the list has more species on it than the DNR has resources to manage and enforce rules for, the list starts to lose some of its meaning.
3: So back at the Herps Species Assessment Group, they start to talk about if they do decide to restrict red sliders, what be, would be the impacts of that? So other states have made similar decisions, like they've decided to restrict a popular pet. For example, hedgehogs are an invasive risk in areas like Pennsylvania, believe it or not. Um, and so Pennsylvania restricted hedgehogs.
1: But the backlash from that, from the pet industry, pet owners, enthusiasts, went all the way to the governor's office and
0: um, lawsuits and and so forth, so yeah.
3: Almost every pet store sells Red-Eared sliders. If they suddenly couldn't sell them, it could have a big economic impact for them and the pet industry as a whole. You would probably also get a lot of angry people, like a lot of pushback, like they had in Pennsylvania. For hedgehogs so on the call the group starts to focus on release because they recognize that if people didn't release their turtles like this whole thing wouldn't be an issue so the question turns to can we just make it illegal to release pets and it turns out that it actually already is illegal like there's a rule, a law in state statute 169.06 that says it is illegal to release any pet. Also, you know, it is already illegal to release pets, but how do you enforce something like that? And so they agree that outreach and education is important, like educating people who are going in to buy a pet. And then, of course, climate change is hanging over this entire process. Yeah, climate change is such a game changer for turtles as well. Red-eared sliders, their native range is kind of in the middle of the United States and in the South. But if you head north to the top edge of their range, that goes into the northern third of Illinois. And Illinois is like right below Wisconsin. So it's like Wisconsin, parts of Wisconsin are pretty close to where these turtles are right now in their native range. And so what if the native range starts to shift because of climate change? And what if they migrate here on their own? That's
2: a whole other topic, right? Like when yeah, right. It actually gets, if, it, if it gets there on its own, you know, interesting topic for yeah, another like
0: time. It's, if it's introduced and becomes native at the same time, like <laughs> I'm not really sure what to do with that.
3: Yeah. Good thing we don't have to solve that today.
0: <laughs> right.
3: The group isn't really here to debate rain shift and climate change, like obviously super big issue.
4: But it's so connected. Like how can you have this discussion without talking about those things?
3: Yeah, I know. Um, I got the sense that they're kind of looking at like the next five years, like this, you can always go back into NR40 and do an emergency listing. Um, So they didn't, solve any of these issues, but they did have to decide how much this idea of a change in climate factors into their decision to regulate red -red sliders or not.
4: There was something so compelling to me about watching the species assessment group decisions come about in real time, listening to these conversations between all of these different stakeholders and agency officials.
3: Yeah, definitely. So back at the turtle group, the one species of turtle they didn't discuss as much was the yellow-bellied slider. Um, they decided to vote on that. And the vote was pretty straightforward because everyone kind of was in agreement that the yellow-bellied slider is more of a coastal species. The group sees pretty, really little risk of them becoming invasive in Wisconsin. And so everyone votes not to regulate the yellow-bellied slider. But it was not that easy with the red-eared slider voting.
5: I came into this thinking i was going to vote prohibited and now i'm more on the fence
7: (laughs) yeah i guess i mean if it's possible i'd like to think about this a little bit more because we have you know there's there's the potential for a population somewhere that we don't really know about you know even if they do become established do they become a threat
8: i have probably the unpopular opinion i would want to um restrict them Primarily because of the amount of
3: pathogens they do have the ability to harbor within them. Kelly was there as a note taker, but she had an idea.
5: It's certainly possible that you could get crews out to, you know, get people out looking for overwintering populations this winter and spring. And um, we're not going to be done with this rule for a long time. So getting further information by spring would still be very useful.
3: Some highly regarded people in the herps community had reported what they saw as overwintering in a park called Stewart Lake County Park, which is in Mount Horeb, so it's not too far away from Madison. So Ryan of the Madison Herb Society, he offers to send a group to Stewart Lake in the next few weeks, just to see.
0: I'll try and get a team out to... Um... Stewart County Park in the lake out there in the next couple weeks so that we can give you guys an idea of what we saw. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much.
3: Well, what did they decide? Yeah, so when it came down to the final vote, basically everyone said that they could not give their vote right now. Like they needed more time to do a little bit of extra research and get a bit more answers.
2: (laughs) This is, it's so interesting because this is like a two species group, right? But it's not, this is not an easy group. Kudos to y'all for, for having this conversation day and bringing up all these really good points.
3: The group members had two weeks to submit their final scorecard and vote. In that time, Ryan had a few volunteers out to Stewart Lake County Park. And the volunteers saw a few adult red-eared sliders. They were basking on logs in the last rays of sun before winter set in. But they didn't see any young turtles, like no babies, nothing under four inches there wasn't enough turtles to cause concern, in in Ryan's opinion. There was no evidence that the turtles there would overtake native populations and cause problems. So the group sent in their final votes, and those weren't conclusive. People still couldn't exactly agree on what to do. So the group volleyed the decision up to the Invasive Species Council, which is, the council that sits above all the species assessment groups. And that council had a discussion and they basically just followed the decision back to the species assessment group, like, do what you think is best. So at this point, David said that they're leaning towards not listing reddard sliders. But NR40 is a flexible law. And so they're, they're looking into a few other kind of gray area options. Like, maybe we make a rule that pet stores are only allowed to sell turtles from certain states, and that might um, prevent concerns of disease. Or maybe we could require everyone who buys a turtle to like sign a release that I'm not going to release the pet. If evidence suddenly appears that Redard sliders are reproducing, they could always do an emergency listing. But in my mind, it's kind of like, well, if we wait until they're already reproducing, wouldn't that be a bit too late? You know, it's just yeah it's it's tense the species assessment group will make their final recommendation about whether red-eared sliders should be written into the law in the spring of 2021 and from there their recommendation will go to the invasive species council and this will all go out for public comment the invasive species council and the species assessment groups have one approach to keeping our waters healthy we talk to a lot of groups and people that are asking the same questions. Like, how do we treat species and beings that aren't from here? How do we protect the native species that we care about? I can't stop thinking about a story that Sarah Smith told. She is one of the co authors of the tribal climate adaptation menu that we talked to earlier.
6: And I know one elder was talking about um, invasive cattails. And instead of, you know, digging them all up, going to burn them, you know, maybe we should learn, you know, what they could be used for. We should learn from them um, instead of raging a, a war on the species and the beings out there that aren't originally from here.
3: Here's Jerry Jendro.
7: We're in changing times, right? In, in and in an era where uh, there's a whole lot of uncertainty that's out there. Well, if you ask me, I think it's the Indigenous people that are best suited to lead the charge during those times because our culture is adaptable. We've been adapting this entire time. We've been adapting even while we were assimilated. And so as this this change continues to happen, I think it's important that those agencies, um, both federal, state, um, NGOs, whatever, really start uplifting the Indigenous communities around them. Um, and start giving us more authority on these decisions. And if you think about what tribes want, and you think about treaty rights, hunt, hunting and fishing and gathering, and if you upheld those rights across Anishinaabe, of uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, if our water was clean enough to have healthy fish populations, the non-native community would benefit. If our wildlife populations were healthy enough to support um, a a healthy harvest, the non-native community will benefit. If the medicines and the plants are healthy and they're able to share their gifts with us through harvesting, I guarantee you that that landscape will be healthy and be beneficial to non-tribal people too. And I think the tribes are ready to do that. And I think we're ready to take that position. Um, And I think it's time.
4: Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Wilson and me, Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at UWISCCGrant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google
2: Play. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.